Welcome. Welcome to the Conversations in Compassion. This is not an interview. It's an attempt to demonstrate conversations that are rooted in compassion and empathy. We will focus in on some of the most important issues of our time. Each conversation that we do will be fresh, and we'll focus on the individual and how to bring their story alive. My hope is through these conversations, we can help resolve the discord in our families, in ourselves, and in the community. And finally, to focus on the most important thing that we need in our time, we need compassion. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being here. And I, I would love to hear from you. What is it like to be Sarah? Thank you, Stephen. Well, first, thank you for having me here. Um, it's just such a wonderful opportunity to support this beautiful project of yours in helping people to learn compassionate ways to connect with each other. So thank you for having me. Mm, thank you. What is it like to be me? I'm the most comfortable in my skin than I've ever been in my life. I'm, mm. um, I turned 38 this past June. And so, you know, I have the most comfort in just being in my body and being on this planet um, that I've ever had. However, um, quite a bit at the time, I'm still uncomfortable here. Mm. So you can feel that duality. You know, you've grown and grown and grown into comfort. There's this other whisper that says, I'm still uncomfortable here. Yeah. And sometimes it's not so much a whisper. Sometimes it's like a, um, a gnawing, mm. you know, just mm. what am I doing? And even deeper than that, just like, who am I? Mm. You know? Yeah. And, and you can feel the levels of that. Like, what am I doing is one thing. And who am I? What am I about? What's my purpose? And you you said it as though, you know, you're finally beginning at this point in your life to feel comfortable in your skin. It just tells me that there's been a hell of a journey to get here. Can you make that larger? Yeah. Yeah. It's It's been quite a ride um, thus far, although I think we all have our own challenges and struggles mm. uh, just being human. Um, None of us is without loss mm. or pain. Mm. Yeah, but for me, you know, I um, I don't know. I mean, that feeling of being just painfully uncomfortable in my skin started as far back as I can remember. Mm. Um, and I've certainly, as an adult, you know, connected a lot of the dots that that really came most likely. I mean, part of it is just the human experience, I think. But a big part of it for me was childhood trauma. Mm. I just had a great deal of of trauma, um, mm. and specifically sexual trauma as a child. And it still, you know, ripples out for sure in my life today. You, you described it so beautifully, uh, you know, painful inside my skin. You know, just this child. And ever since I've known life itself, and you could feel that the trauma of somebody you know, violating you and sexually is, is is kind of just left you with a lot of that pain. It still ekes out of your skin. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I certainly for, for many years also pretty much as far back as I can remember, um, would seek some sort of way out, some sort of release from that discomfort. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, whether it was through when I was in middle school, just, you know, really throwing myself into sports and, and, and athletics. Um, and then, you know, middle school to high school, I started to find substances um, and I was stealing and I was lying. And um, and then, you know, in high school, I really became very deeply um, imprisoned Mm. you know, by substances. And that just, that trajectory continued for, for quite a long time in my life. So you could feel the, that substances was at first a relief from the pain that was inside the skin that was oozing out. And then it became its own pain. And it just, I, I love the word imprisoned by it, you know, and feeling like it didn't matter anymore, that you, that you didn't matter. What mattered was just to lie and steal and do whatever I had to do to find the substance that was going to relieve the pain. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think when I, you know, think back to myself, um, my younger self, especially, I was just constantly in a state of reacting, Mm. you know, reacting to whatever came my way. And the other piece that I really lived with for so, so long in my life um, was just desperately wanting to be liked Mm. and never feeling ever a part of. Uh, part of that is I grew up on a very small island out in Casco Bay, and I literally was separate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also I just lived with this feeling of just being an outsider always. And certainly once I found heroin when I was 18, um, everything changed. And, you know, when you talk about that, that kind of comfort that substances initially gave when I found heroin that was kind of the epitome of that in my life was you know I I, it felt like I was coming home it was like this just everything melted away all the pain melted away all the suffering melted away and for those hours or however long I was high initially Mm. it was this freedom that I'd never felt before it was almost like an instant pain reliever Definitely. And and with a quality of it that not only was relieving the pain, but actually a feeling good that was on top of relieving the pain. Uh, a sort of mythical sense almost the minute the drug went into your body. Definitely. I remember just counting down the seconds almost, you know, after I would inject, you know, just like knowing that mm. I was going to be okay. Like any second mm. I was going to be okay. And yeah, it was this added layer above just pain relief it was mm-hmm. this this freedom in my body this freedom in the world mm-hmm. to just not care to not hurt mm-hmm. and and no longer care about whether people liked me or not no longer care about the the this ongoing sort of pain that was living in the body just nothing mattered yeah and uh it was almost magical and i love how you said it just like seconds like counting the seconds. The minute you injected it, you could count seconds before it would take a full effect. You knew it. You knew that six seconds into it, I would be okay. Yeah, it it really was. um, 
you know, there's this TED Talk, Jonathan Hari, and he talks about, mm. you know, how we bond with mm. substances because they they take away our pain mm. and they make us feel good. And that's so true with, with me and heroin. Mm. You know, heroin was, you know, and of course now I have this larger context through my healing to understand looking back, but heroin was the father figure you know the mm. benevolent at mm. first it was a benevolent father figure i never had it was mm. you know um and it took away my pain and so i loved it uh and it it loved me back until until it didn't i like you could feel it too you just like i love it it's, it's the attachment of love for the very first time and i could trust it i could trust that in six seconds i would experience it and I could trust it better than any human being, better than life itself. And that, and, and that love affair, you know, that you're talking about, the attachment, it was so valuable because you had this opening. You had this place where I don't feel loved. I don't feel valued. I don't feel even liked. And so it fit so beautifully into that hole, that space. Yeah. It, it it really did until it didn't. Right. Mm -hmm. And you said that a couple of times. So tell me about it didn't. There, there has to be a moment almost like a, a touch tone that said, mm, this is not doing that anymore. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's interesting that you say that there was a moment because I, I, I think there was definitely a period in time. There certainly was a moment where it just became painfully clear that my relationship with heroin had taken a very dark turn mm -hmm. um and really it was you know it was probably eight months into a daily habit mm -hmm. um where i was sick i was dope sick for the first time mm -hmm. and it wasn't even full-blown withdrawals it was just I couldn't get I couldn't get heroin, um, mm -hmm. you know, for for half a day, and I just started to realize that all the things I'd heard, you know, initially I'd heard all of these kind of urban myths, like mm -hmm. if you don't use twice in a row or you don't use three times in a row, then you won't get addicted. Mm -hmm. um, all these different things, and so I was still kind of living in this place of not understanding what was really happening to me, and that first time that I really started to to get so sick i it kind of dawned on me in this new way like i'm in a lot of trouble here i, I can just feel you know you're kind of sitting there just feeling that moment of like i am in a lot of trouble it's almost like a whisper yeah and then it, it, it's it's so hard to crawl out huh i mean we lose so many people they hear the whisper but they just keep going and they become more desperate all of a sudden there's one one bag, one one needle, one time that they're gone. How did you crawl out of that? Well, the first thing that just popped up for me as you were saying that is how different the the landscape was then um, in the opioid realm, I guess, because this December will be my 13th year um, anniversary in recovery and so this was when i was using it was before fentanyl mm. and um so it it really was a different landscape and yeah that at, at first i didn't want to crawl out you know i i i didn't 
Mm. I didn't at all. I just, I, and, and that was the name of the game for some years was really just, you know, now I knew what was going on and I couldn't really, you know, there was something that like this bell had rung inside of me that couldn't be unrung. And I knew like Mm -hmm. that I, I had gotten myself into a really difficult situation. Um, but I still loved heroin. And for the most part, you know, when I did get, when I was able to get high, heroin was still loving me. So I just, the, the name of the game became do whatever I needed to do mm. to, to, to keep that needle in my arm and to keep the substances flowing. And mm-hmm. that, that led me, you know, before I found my way out, I went deeper. Yeah. It's a very interesting because you, you could hear that you're in trouble here there's another part of you that says, we're not giving this up. And took you deeper and deeper into sacrifice, deeper into sacrificing yourself and sort of doing things that even today you don't feel good about. You're sort of adding the shame to your life just to get that bag. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and shame, it's true. I mean, shame is like this poison, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that exists long after the substance has left the body. And, you know, so here I am almost, you know, a couple months from 13 years later mm-hmm. in a completely different place. And there's still this residue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some some of the, the experiences that I had, you know, that were the hardest were, you know, I ended up working in the sex industry for some years. And that period of time was really, I just, I was really just a shell of a person, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and every day was like more layers of trauma, Mm -hmm. you know, and I was just, you know, but again, it was like, I was such a slave to, to my addiction that I just, you know, I, I, I did what I needed to do to, to, to not get sick. And finally, that ended when I was in and out of detox several times over the course of a couple months. Mm. And a doctor had seen me come in and out through the summer and get progressively sicker and sicker. And I had hepatitis C and I just, I was really not in a good place. And he just looked right at me and he said, you know, you're going to die. You're, you're, you're going to die if you don't you know, if you don't do something different, you're going to die. And and he suggested that I go to the methadone clinic. Mm. And that you start using medication and medication-assistant treatment to get yourself out. And for some reason, people had said, Sarah, you're in trouble before that. But that moment you heard this person. Do you, do you know why that person? You know, I've thought about this and I really don't. And I think um, the way that I view it now with kind of my training and my understanding as a recovery coach is that we all have, it's a very personal process, this Mm. process of recovery. And for me, it started long before I put the substances down. Mm. And this is an example where the suffering had just gotten so great. Mm. And for whatever reason, I was just in a place, you know, where I was for a split second, there, there was an opening Mm -hmm. and, and I really don't know. And that's, you know, in my own spiritual beliefs, you know, that's, that's 
it's a gift from the universe that there is just this kind of crack in the the prison wall, you mm. know, um, mm. and a little bit of light could shine through. Um, and and I said yes, you know, and um, and so I started my journey with methadone. Mm. You right there, you know, sort of that crack, that spiritual awakening that somehow I let the voice in of that doctor took the turn. What was it what what was that whole journey like, that the treatment journey? Because as a woman, uh, it, it, you know, as this person who was in this sex slave, uh, you know, sex industry and um I don't know. I mean, you're you're walking into a, a system of care, and how did they receive you? It was another whole situation where I felt just. I mean, part of it, part of it is just the the stigma that exists, and of course now I can put words to this, but then I I was not able to, you know. Mm-hmm. But there's there's a stigma around medication, you know, assisted treatment, mm. and. You know, I had heard again, like urban myths, you know, that that methadone is like liquid handcuffs. Mm. And um, and so I felt like I I felt like it was a failure to, you know, that I was a failure to make that decision. Um, And ultimately, two years later, I gave birth to my first child who was born dependent on methadone. Mm. And um, that was a really hard time for me because... By that time, I had, I wasn't drinking, I wasn't smoking cigarettes, I wasn't doing any other substances. I was taking my prescribed dose as prescribed. And I so badly wanted to create this positive um, life for my child. Mm -hmm. And when he was born, you know, he was in the hospital for six and a half weeks um, going through withdrawals. And still to this day, I haven't seen anybody withdraw harder than, you know, my baby. Mm. And um, I was really treated very poorly by nurses and doctors. And I really felt so ashamed. So, you know, that was a whole nother layer of Mm. like really wanting, part of me wanting to live, not wanting to die, not wanting to overdose and die. So taking this step to take the medication and then kind of where that led me mm-hmm. um, was also very painful. Yeah, you could you could feel the community's uh, response to you was very judgmental and very harsh. And here you were trying with all of your power to borrow what people had said you could do and what would be helpful to you. And, and then you give birth and get a child that's almost dying from that which they gave you so that you could get better. But that wasn't even the worst part of it. The worst part was the people's judgment and what they were saying about you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and those are some of the voices that still mm. occasionally, when I'm in a, 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 a weak moment, you know, or, or feeling overwhelmed or just really down, you know, th- that's the kind of stuff that kind of bubbles up to the surface sometimes. It's just that that feeling of, of shame around, you know, um, I really felt like I was treated like, like a criminal and, you know, like somebody who, who didn't care at all about their child when the opposite was so true. 
you know, the, the opposite was was really true, was that everything I did um, from the moment that I found out I was pregnant to now has been for my, my child and for my children, really. Mm-hmm. And to be seen as somebody that wasn't doing it, that didn't care, that had done all this because you didn't care or something, was just so opposite of who you were. You know, and I, I just want to highlight it because, you know, this is part of the struggle of this epidemic is when people are having interchange with it, that they feel the shame. You know, whether, whether it's you giving birth and pre and post natal care and the judgments that came, you know, or, or just trying to get help as a woman. So you became a mom. And mom became a part where you could finally really be in love in a way that you probably didn't even imagine possible. It's absolutely true. I mean, I I was home with my son all the time, and I made his baby food from scratch. I cloth diapered him. I did all the things that I could. Um, and he was he was my life. He was my my reason for being here. Um, and you know, I was also still sick. I, I was on a lot of methadone. I had um, hepatitis C. And, you know, I would do things like, you know, kind of nod out at a stoplight and rear on somebody. Mm. And so there was this part of me that just wanted something more for my life. You could You could feel that, you know, this wasn't enough, even though you were, you know, you had a child and but you're still feeling the sickness. You're still feeling the shame. You're still feeling the body's reaction to it all. Yeah, yeah. And I just really, I didn't want to be on all the methadone. I just, I, I wanted more. And so one day my husband came home and he had been listening to This American Life with Ira Glass in the car. And Ira was talking about this new treatment for, it was, in clinical trials. It was an experimental treatment for um, opioid use disorder, and it was called Ibogaine. And, um, you know, a couple months later, I was taking part in this clinical trial to get off of methadone. And I still, to this day, you know, remember how it felt to leave my son at the airport. Mm. Um, I sat next to this very nice man on the plane who was very kind and I was just crying the entire time. I mean, all the way from Maine to Mexico, I was just, you know, crying, 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 crying. Mm, just so that you could have a different life than all that methadone and all that nodding and you wanted something different. You were willing to do this incredible courageous act, go towards a trial. Yeah, there was just something something driving me forward and part of it is that you know I was still restless inside of myself mm-hmm. even with all that methadone I was still I wasn't at peace inside of myself mm-hmm. even with my son um you know and now he was through the withdrawals and thriving you know I still had no peace inside myself mm-hmm. and um and it was a very intense time, um, both because I was leaving my family to go 
do this experimental treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and also because Ibogaine is a hallucinogenic. Mm-hmm. And so there was a whole piece of really letting go of um, so much in that experience mm-hmm. and, and, and surrendering. Um, but the way that I framed it during that time was I just wanted to offer my life up to the universe. You know, I just wanted to, to really just give everything I could to the universe and, and trust more like hope that, um, that something would come from it. Something different would come. Hmm. With some incredible humility, I give myself up. That I don't matter. I'm. I'm there's got to be a greater universe that's going to somehow love me or care about me, or or I'm not going to make it. And I'll let that decision be outside of me. Yeah, I didn't. You know, I I, I didn't really have a choice, you know, in that moment. I was just so desperate for something. I mean, really, I was so desperate for my suffering to stop, you know. Mm. Um, I mean, I still struggled, especially during that time, with just crippling social anxiety. Mm. I mean, I remember my neighbor, um, this is before I went to Ibogaine, you know, my neighbor lived right next door, and we had, she also had a young child, and one day we had seen each other in the driveway and we we scheduled like for the next day at one o'clock, we're going to get our strollers and take our babies for a walk. And so here it is the next day. It's like, you know, 1259 and I'm crouching beneath the window. You know, she can see my cars in the driveway, but I'm just so consumed by anxiety and panic that I'm like literally like hiding beneath my window. Um because I, I just couldn't get myself to, like, get out of the house. Mm. Um, and so that's part of what, you know, the context, that's just one little, mm. you know, piece of what was going on for me. And that's part of the context that was, like, driving me to find something beyond that suffering of just not being able to function still in the world. I could feel the pain of crouching down. You could feel that anxiety of she would get to know me. And I can't let that. I have a, a lifetime, a childhood, a adolescence filled with shame, pain, and she'll see it. And there's something about flying away to kind of, even though it was so painful to say, I, I, I can't, I can't live this way. I don't know if this will be helpful, but I can't do this. We only have a few more minutes. I, first, I just want to say I'm, I've got a bunch of tears in my eyes. It's such a powerful, beautiful, spiritual story. What would you, if you have a microphone for a few minutes here, what would you want to say about women who struggle with opiate use or women who struggle with being abused, trauma with sexual abuse, or just the interaction between you and that healthcare system. If you had that free mic, what would you say to them? Hmm. Well, there's so much, but really 
you know, to anybody that's struggling, whether it's male or female or however you identify, you know, the the undercurrent of my healing has been really getting to know who I am. And, you know, being an interfaith minister, I see the world through many different lenses. And um, they all kind of converge for me at how none of us are truly broken. Mm. You know, our trauma, um, whatever flavor that may be, you know, leads us to believe that we are fundamentally broken. But I just always think about, like, you know, when we were born, when you were born, when my child was born, when each of us was born, we were born whole, Mm. you know, Um, and perfect and beautiful. And the world is complicated. Mm. You know, there's so many causes and conditions that shape our lives. Um, And so that's a lot of what I do for myself is, you know, everything that I can to remind myself that that I'm whole and that fundamentally I'm a good person. Mm. Um, And I believe that about everybody. I believe that about, you know, my father who abused me. I believe that about Trump. I believe that about everybody that somehow, somewhere along the, the, the line, you know, we, we lose track of our, our natural innocence and mm. our natural beauty and wholeness. And so that's the first thing. You know, the second thing is that there's, there's no right way or, or wrong way to heal. Mm. I think that this is, you know, a, another lie that so many of us, you know, believe is that, you know, that there's only one right way to heal or that if we do this, if we take medication, if we don't believe in God, if we do believe in God, if we, you know, um, read books and that's how we recover, if we, you know, go to the gym and that's how we recover, if we don't go to the gym, like there's just so many ways that on the healing journey that we put ourselves in these boxes that further keep us down. You know, so that's something that I remind myself of regularly and do my best to remind the people I work with and the people that I care about regularly as well is that there there's no right or wrong way to do this. Well, we, we do have to put, sadly, some closure <laughs> to this. And I love that you just said, you know, the first way through this is that we have to see everybody in the eyes as not broken, you know, that they're doing the best that they can. And the second is that people have to have autonomy and choice about their pathway, you know, their pathway for discovery, you know. And um, I really appreciate you being here and doing this with me and um, I'm touched by your journey. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. I, I really appreciate you and how you show up in the world. And um, I just think your work, you know, ripples out in so many meaningful ways. So thank you for for asking me and including me in this project. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Conversations in Compassion with Stephen Andrew. Conversations in Compassion is a production of Dignity, Maine, 
And if you'd like to learn more about that program or this podcast, you can visit DignityMaine.com. You can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. And you can follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash DignityMaine, all one word. We would absolutely love your feedback on this program, so if you have any, please send it to heti at gwi.net and let us know your thoughts. Until next time, thanks again for listening, and take care.